In Genesis 1, we read that God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And then later on it says, And it was so. God saw everything that God had made, and indeed, it was very good. So from the beginning, we see certain things are true about humanity, about who we are, and about why we are. For one thing, we are made in the image of God. Different scholars have different ideas of what exactly this means. It, it probably doesn't mean that we've got God's ears. <laughs> Some have said, oh, it means that we can think and reason, or we have the ability or the capacity for language, or we have some unique uh, capability to hear God's voice or interact with God. But I'm most convinced by the scholars who compare this idea of being made in the image of God with the other creation stories that were being told in the world when this one was being told. Because those stories also speak of humans being created in the image of God. Or rather, a human being created in the image of the gods. You see, the other stories of creation that were around the ancient Near East, the the region where the biblical stories were being told and written, they did not say that humans were created in God's image, but rather that the king was created in God's image, meaning that the king was the God's representative on earth, that by ruling over other people, the king was representing the God's power and will. And what was that will? Well, it varies from story to story, but most of them centered around people being, in effect, slave labor, to do the work that pleases the gods and that the gods have gotten tired of doing for themselves. So growing food for the gods to eat, for example, or building temples for the gods to live in, that sort of thing. That's what people were for. And the king, as the god's representative, has a divine mandate to make sure the people keep at it without complaining too much and bothering the gods. There's actually stories um, in the ancient world of the gods getting annoyed at all the noise that was coming up from the humans down below. So those are the sorts of stories that people were telling around Israel. But Israel's story is very different. It's not the king who is in God's image, but rather all of humanity, male and female even, which is fairly striking for the time. And so it's not the king who is God's representative in ruling over other people, but rather all of humanity who are God's representatives in ruling over creation. What we get is a story of God's will that is not about God's own comfort, but rather about the flourishing of all creation. The Bible says God gives dominion over creation to humans, but I don't think we should read dominion to mean harsh, self-centered exploitation because we don't represent a God who is harsh, self-centered, and exploitative. Rather, we represent a God who has created a very good creation and wants it well cared for. And, furthermore, we do not represent a God who hoards power for God's self, but rather one whose first impulse 
is to share power with the very creation God has made. Just a a quick relevant aside here. There are some who see evolution, the theory of evolution, as an assault upon God's existence or God's power. But I think it's more accurate to say that evolution can be a stunning example of the extent to which God is willing to go to share God's power with creation by filling creation itself with the ability to go its own way, to create and extend and multiply life, not by the strict dictates of an iron-fisted tyrant, but within the expansive boundaries of a God who takes joy in collaborative work. Even when that work goes sideways sometimes or takes a little less efficient path than it might have if God had you know, dictated things a little more. And so the flourishing of all creation, God's dream for the universe, is not a completed act when God stops creating in Genesis 1. Instead, God takes the collaboration even further, appointing us to be God's co-rulers, giving humanity responsibility, and not pretend responsibility, but real responsibility for the health of the creation that God has begun. So among other things, I think this means that creation in Genesis 1 was not perfect. The Bible says it was very good, not perfect. And the whole idea of creation being perfect in the beginning is actually imported much later from Greek philosophy. It's a Greek idea, not an Israeli one. Genesis 1 tells us the story of a very good but unfinished creation, which necessarily means it's, it's not perfected yet. Unfinished because that is the only way we could be given real responsibility. If there's nothing left for us to do, really, that's not very collaborative. Put another way, If we aren't able to mess things up, then what responsibility do we really have? It'd be like if we told our kids that they have the freedom to cook dinner, so long as by cook dinner we're clear that they will just reheat the leftovers in the fridge for exactly one minute and 30 seconds in the microwave. That's not collaboration. That's not freedom. God collaborates with humanity, giving us the dignity that comes with our task to be fruitful and multiply which is to say, to extend God's kingdom, God's reign throughout the whole creation, to multiply. Because we as God's representatives will have gone throughout all creation as we multiply. Sin is not a tragedy in Genesis 3 because it damages God's perfect creation. It's a tragedy because it prevents us from doing our job, that of extending and representing God's goodness universally literally universally. How can we do that when we choose not to represent God? The good news, though, is that God's dream has not changed. It is still to see all of creation flourishing, to see people as God's partners, bringing the goodness of God's reign everywhere. We are still called to engage in and partner with God in God's work in the world. That is fundamental to who we are and why we are. It's embedded deep inside us, a sense that we were made for a purpose bigger than ourselves. And we were. We are. We are made to work for the flourishing of all creation, to partner with God in that work. Now, this is a broad calling. It includes 
any number of diverse things, but I do want to touch on a few of them here because I think they're important. So this calling to partner with God in God's work in the world, it includes that which leads to my own personal flourishing or that of my family. We have to remember that when this book was written, the vast majority of people were subsistence farmers. Work literally meant putting food on the table. That's it. There wasn't some grander purpose than that. Now, not many people today are probably subsistence farmers, at least in America, but there are so many people whose work doesn't have any obvious higher purpose. It's a means to a paycheck. But insofar as that paycheck leads to your flourishing or even just your survival, I think the Bible would say that it counts as partnering in God's work in the world. That isn't to say that God might not have something else for you in another season or even in this one, but it's crucial to identify this. We cannot fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply without food on the table and a roof over our heads. We, we can't fully contribute to the world's flourishing if we ourselves aren't even getting by. Sometimes work is mostly, or even all, about a paycheck. And in God's eyes, that counts. It's also crucial to note that this invitation to partner with God in God's work in the world, it's not limited to paid employment. I've sat through a whole bunch of sermons on Sabbath over the years, and almost everyone, I have to say, assumed full-time paid employment as kind of the baseline of people's experience. It was a sermon about how, yes, you should work in your full-time job, usually with stock options and expense reports and international travel and whatnot, but you should also try to take a day off once in a while, get some rest. And oh, by the way, uh, let me show you some recent research about how this will then allow you to be even more productive in your full-time job the rest of the week. Not coincidentally, uh, these sermons were pretty much always delivered by men who had never not been fully employed in their entire lives. I remember sitting through one of these sermons a few years back when I was not fully employed and just raging inside, wanting to yell out, hey, I'm unemployed or at least underemployed right now. I don't need a sermon about how I should be resting. I need to engage more. I need to understand what I should be doing in this time when I'm looking for a job, not understand how to rest. In fact, I've tried to use uh, the words engage and engagement as much as possible uh, here today, just because using the word work, as in work and rest, it kind of has this connotation of paid employment that, that really isn't helpful for this conversation, because we are not talking just about paid employment. Paid employment, yes, but also all of the other things that people might be doing. Anything that leads to the flourishing of creation counts as engaging in God's work in the world. Anything. And again, this includes paid employment, even just for a paycheck, paid employment. But it's not at all limited to paid employment. It includes raising kids, being a friend, being a student, serving the poor, caring for creation, being a significant other, working for justice, fixing up your house, blessing a coworker, loving your neighbor, and rest, which we'll get to in just a minute here. 
Now, at this point in our Sunday worship gathering, we heard a few stories from people in our community in some of the diverse areas that they have engaged in God's work in the world. And so we heard a story about a job and how that included uh, God's work in the world. We heard a story about parenting and also a story about gardening and kind of the rhythms of rest and work that are built into that uh, hobby and how that can also lead to the, to the flourishing of all creation. And I love the diversity of the stories that we heard. And I really hope that God can use them uh, to help expand our understanding of what counts in this conversation. There's real joy and hope in the reality that we can engage in God's work anywhere, with anyone, in all circumstances. But there's also kind of a dark side to that as well, because that means, well, it means the work is never done. There is always more that we could do to contribute to the world's flourishing. Always more. Always. It's kind of like how God reached the end of the sixth day of creation and left things unfinished. There was more work God could have done. But instead, God handed it off to us. God engaged in a rhythm of engagement and rest, and then commands humans to do the same. And I think there are at least two reasons, probably many more, but at least two reasons for this. First, it is not possible to flourish if we don't engage in a rhythm of engagement and rest. We see it in the number of people who burn out because their engagement never gets switched off. They go and go and go and exhaust themselves in the process, maybe quickly, maybe over decades. But we also see it in the number of people who turn to drug use or experience depression when they have lost a sense of how and why they are engaging in the first place. When people are unsure of how their work or how their daily lives contribute to something bigger, people wither. Again, we were built, made to engage in God's work in the world. And so this rhythm is crucial for our own flourishing of engagement and rest. And this includes taking a Sabbath. The Bible suggests a weekly day off, but it also includes a rhythm within a day or within the calendar year. Engagement and rest in a rhythm that contributes to your flourishing and to the flourishing of the world around you. But then there's a second, maybe more important reason that rest matters in this rhythm. God rests and gives responsibility over to humans to partner in the work. So we rest to imitate God, to be like God, to be God's image, God's representative in the world. And part of that is imitating the type of engagement that God models for us. One that recognizes that it is not my job to accomplish the flourishing of all creation. It is our job. And if I go through life as if it were my job, I'll never share in the work with others. I'll never actually accomplish the dream God has because that dream is collaborative. The flourishing includes the working together. And rest can remind me of that fact, that it does not all depend on me. It does not stand and fall with me. And, and this is maybe the key point, it cannot be accomplished by me alone, no matter how hard I try. We flourish as we engage and rest together. The world flourishes as we engage and rest together, which is incidentally part of why we gather as a church each week, 
so that we can eat and rest and celebrate and mourn together, face-to-face, reminding one another of why what we do all week matters, but also reminding one another that we matter and that the quality of the community we form together matters. So some of us may need to rest, to build into our daily, weekly, yearly rhythms, times when we can stop engaging in God's work so that we can truly, fully represent God, so that we can truly flourish. And some of us, and these are not opposed to each other, some of us need to engage more. Maybe this means doing more. Maybe we are spending our days killing time when God would invite us to step into God's work in some way, in one of the many diverse ways that could happen. Maybe some of us need to get involved working for justice or loving our friends or coworkers well or going back to school or finding a job. But maybe it isn't doing more that many of us need. Maybe it is instead doing what we do differently, recognizing the meaning that it rightly holds, seeing our just-for-a-paycheck work as something that contributes to our own flourishing or the flourishing of our family, which God cares deeply about, or looking for opportunities to do the things we do with our day in a way that better represents God and God's character to whomever we might interact with, friends and coworkers, family, strangers, or seeing our hobbies or the causes that we are involved in as ways that we can contribute to the flourishing of others, ourselves, and the world. Seeing all these things as a way of partnering with God in God's grand vision for the world, as evidence of the dignity God gave us when God made us in God's image. So I would encourage you this week to reflect on that, to reflect on the idea of the rhythm of engagement and rest and to identify, do you need to engage more? Do you need to rest more? Do you need to do both? Or are you doing pretty well in this rhythm right now in this season? Whatever it is, we'll be back with another podcast later this week to give some ideas of what that engagement and rest might look like, or feel free to do something as you see fit something that might fit into your own schedule and help create a rhythm that allows you and the world around you to flourish.